Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, everyone. This is another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, we're speaking with Jennifer Burnham Grubbs. Jennifer is the co-founder and president of Quantum Insurance Services, an award-winning boutique insurance brokerage firm. Jennifer is a classic entrepreneur who entered an industry, saw opportunities for improvements, and after proving out her case by tripling her boss's book of business in three years, decided to found her own insurance brokerage that's focused on value and doing what's right for the client. We get into her story and really dive into this values piece. Why is it so important to do right by the client? And why hasn't this been or why isn't this the prevailing philosophy? These are important factors that help to determine if you're working with the right partner, be it insurance or investing. Are your values aligned? We also tap Jennifer's expertise to find out how insurance is a pillar in building a healthy financial foundation, how to think about using life insurance, and even the nuances of long-term care insurance and why it matters so much as the boomer population ages. This episode will enlighten you about insurance, the industry, commissions, and how to work insurance into your own financial plan. If like me, you've been confused, sold the wrong policy, or just given up on insurance, this episode will surely clarify a lot. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course, of course. We have so much in common with the way that we approach our businesses. We have these similar values and also our approach to our clients and our partners. You're an entrepreneur, as are we, and you specifically saw an opportunity to make these quantifiable improvements to an industry that you know says it's in service to the client, but doesn't always walk that talk. So would love to get started started with telling us like how you got started in the insurance business and founded your own company. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for calling out the elephant in the room. I think that life insurance and insurance in general is one of those things where people do tend to kind of groan and just go, you know, for a number of reasons, A, it seems like a very accounting-y left brain kind of thing to be having to deal with but then also there are bad actors and sort of the stereotype of like a terrible insurance agent and those are myriad so you know the groan that emanates i think is unfortunately an all too familiar trope for a lot of people and how i ended up insurance we kind of joke like very few people aim to get into insurance per se and if they do you're almost like Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> For me, I had always loved math. I was like really good at math, but I also really loved people. I, at Princeton, I was like, okay, maybe I should be a math major. But then I figured the only thing I could end up doing would be like be a math teacher, which seemed a little, at the time, it seemed like a boring thing. Now I think education is actually one of the most exciting things anybody could do. But at the time, I was like 21. So, you know, at the time, I was like, no, that's not going to be good. So I tried anthropology and loved that because it was sort of social anthropology. And then I graduated and then I was like, okay, I'm going to move to the West Coast because I grew up on the East Coast. And I started with a job, Beverly Hills, just going to be like a summer stint that was actually the cousin of a friend of mine, a good friend of mine from college. And I was working at this Beverly Hills boutique that was an insurance agency. And everybody there had been uh, doing it for like 30 years and there were all different kinds of people. There was like the guy that would just go, he'd, he'd like go up and down Beverly Drive and try to talk somebody into a big sale. And then at that point he would like eat for a year and then it would be time to go again and you know find another victim, so to speak. And then there was like <laughs> the old timer alcoholic and his assistant and they'd been doing it forever and they were just sort of slow and steady, but you know, it's kind of a whole sad situation. And then there were a few others and 
Then there was my particular boss, who was the nicest of the bunch, I will say. He was really very sweet. Uh, and I started out just as an assistant. I was like, okay, I'm just going to kind of like do this gig and get oriented in LA. And I was always like one of those people who would learn quickly and I would ask a lot of questions. So as I was assisting him, I would just find something out or see how things connect. And little by little, I started to notice something that I found to be really disturbing, which was that even the nicest among the bunch was constantly talking people into something that was kind of more expensive than they might need or discouraging them from downgrading coverage, for example, even though that might have allowed them to save money and get a better value. And I literally, honestly, I was so thick at first, I couldn't figure out why. And I started becoming more and more proactive in my job. And I would just be like, hey, Martin, don't worry, I handled this renewal for you. And I found out that they could downgrade from that platinum plan down to the gold, it would still cover all their doctors. And it saved them like $2,000 a year. They were really, really happy. And he'd be like, Oh, okay. All right. And I was like, why is he not, why is he not happy? With what he oh, did? No. I don't get it. And finally I realized that the reason was, is that in insurance, basically there's this kind of messed up thing where you're paid based on the premium. So most people are thinking of it in this really small way where the lower the premium, the less you're making. And so they just want you to buy as much as they can talk you into because they want their pocket to grow richer. And the moment that really came home for me and I realized that even the nicest of the people I knew, and I'd had a really good cross section into this industry, that they were all operating that way. And that these were all really avuncular figures. They were people that we are kind of thinking we should trust. They're, you know, distinguished or sort of distinguished, typically older gentlemen that we think are like, are you know, maybe like your dad and they're going to have your best interests at heart. So we're endowing them with this trust. But in fact, they're interests were not aligned with their client's interests, which I think any client is like, please make the most with my money. Help me get rich, stay rich, become richer. I need my money anywhere I want to put it. I don't want to waste it. So that to me was the objective. And once I noticed that there was a difference um, between what most of the operators in this industry were doing and what I would do, my like consultant brain came on and I was just like, this is really this is crazy. This is not right. And I'm a problem solver. So I suddenly was just like, well, this has to be changed. <laughs> and so for uh, three years, I ended up working at that firm and I tripled my boss's business in three years. I remember the rep came in and was like, Marty, what are you doing? Right? Like your business is through the roof. What's happening? And it was me. I'd been doing like all this work for clients and I was taking time to you know, tailored needs around the client and find where they could save more money and stretch their dollars further. And they were really happy. And so they'd rave about their result and share it with someone else. And so then the light bulb went off for me. I was like, wait, I can help people. I can use my brain and I can even make money doing this. This is really, really cool. I actually like this because I was always very entrepreneurial. And then interestingly, right around then the Affordable Care Act started to kind of come and bubble up to the surface. It was early days because we as brokers knew more about it than like the general public, but it was this sea change that was coming and almost all the brokers were like, oh my God, this is awful. Commissions were getting cut, you know, from 20% down to like 1% on medical plans. And it was 20 times harder than it ever used to be. You needed like a degree to be able to even understand the ACA. And then all of a sudden I just thought, oh my gosh, I think this is why I ended up like here because I have the capacity to understand all this. I'm not intimidated by it and I can kind of fly through this storm and hopefully lead others through it. And this is my one chance because as someone who is slightly younger and frankly female in this industry, it was like, I probably wasn't going to get a lot of credit, even though like I went to Princeton and graduated summa cum laude. I wasn't going to get credit per se against like some older 65 year old established looking gentleman until I knew stuff that they didn't know. And so I was like, okay, this is when we have to launch quantum. And what we did was we found that quantum as a commissions agnostic insurance consulting firm, which means that when we solve the equation for how to save somebody money and get them the best coverage possible, our commissions are completely out of the equation. Like we know we're going to work harder to make less and that's great because hardly anybody else does that. And that's how our business can grow through referral and word of mouth. And I had proof that that works. So I wasn't afraid to do it that way. 
And very fortunately, we won a couple of awards within the first couple of years of launching because we had aligned with a lot of accountants and employment attorneys and other trusted advisors who needed help, especially with understanding the Affordable Care Act. And we were like, look, we'll be your cheat sheet. We'll tell you what you need to know so that you can advise your clients correctly because you don't have time to learn all this stuff. It's really complex. And that got us our start. So, wow, our story. Wow. There's so much there. There's so much there around this, this concept that you embody and bring through, which is providing value. And, and, and like, ultimately that is what allowed you to grow first your, your boss's book of business and then your own company. And that's what you continue to do, which is really like the, like, it's like the unexpected sort of thing that that somebody would expect if they have any expectations in insurance. But, you know, aside from this idea of providing so much value to your clients, what are some of the other values that you've really infused into your company that you bring through and, and also like with your partners and your employees? Oh my gosh, a lot. We actually have a whole list of core values that we created. They definitely are, you know, like be excellent at what you do. We, we actually try, I don't say it like this to the team, but I think they understand it. And that's the best way sometimes to get through to people is try to create joy in what you're doing. I think no matter what you're doing, if you approach it with joy, that's kind of contagious. And there's joy in being excellent at something. There's joy in being of service to other people. There's a real joy for me in making things better. I love fixing things or making them better than they were before. I just, I really thrive when I can do that. That's just how I'm built. And I do try to kind of like infuse that in the company and they do know that. I mean, the expectation is to overpromise, promise, no, under promise and over deliver, <laughs> you know, try to like just small detail, for example, like when we work with people in life insurance, there are a lot of factors that go into how you get the very best rate for a customer. And part of it is you have to know details about their health history so that you can then take them and anonymously pre-screen them with all the different carriers, right? And find out which carrier will have the most favorable decision towards a condition like, for example, asthma or endometriosis or even got forbid cancer or whatever, right? And, you know, back again, like at my old firm, they never ever did that. They'd be like, well, you'll probably get preferred because everyone thinks they're healthy. Right. And then they do the work and then they'd be like, oh, sorry, you know, you should have told us you were a smoker, you're standard. Now your rates are double. There's nothing you can do about it. They're not mad because they just made double. Right. The client's upset. But every time it kept happening and I was like, this is so dumb, because if we ask up front, <laughs> like, are you a smoker? Do you have conditions? And then we did do the pre-screening thing, which was how I would do it. We could save them so much money and get a better outcome. So we do that. We'll you know, ask all these questions up front and pre-screen and then say, look, at worst, you're probably going to get standard because of X, Y, or Z, but hopefully we can get you better than that. And almost always we do end up coming in at what we said or better, which I think is another example of how do you try to be of service to others, leveraging your expertise for their benefit, not, not yours and hope and trust that the rest follows. Yeah. It's. I'm thinking about this because I I know I've um, had policies here and there. I don't have them anymore. I mean, there's like all of the. We'll get into that in a minute because I definitely want to get into like the the meat and potatoes of of insurance. But it 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 seems like it's a trust issue. Like you 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 go to somebody and and you're really trusting that they're going to do right by you, and there has to be an alignment of interests. So. Um, like you were saying, you're a non-commission-based company. So you're aligning your your business, yourselves to the client. And you said you've won awards. Like, I didn't know there were awards in the insurance industry, but like, can you talk just a little bit about that and, and just about like how else you align to your clients and, and what kind of opportunities that has brought you to in terms of growing your business? Yes. And I, I do want to clarify one thing. You said we're not commission-based, but we are. I mean, our industry does still work in that we get paid a commission by the carrier. So you as a broker like us, nobody okay. has to pay us a fee to use us. It's like a car broker, if you've ever had a car broker. It's the difference between an agent as a bro- and a broker. 
brokers with work with all the different carriers and and not just one carrier, which is why you're able to leverage them against each other and like get better deals for your client. The client doesn't pay us for their services. We still get paid when we have business through a carrier. But the difference is consistently we will go the extra mile to do the analysis to find how we save them money and reduce their overhead, which is why it's so important. We're commissions agnostic is what that means. In other words, we're not factoring in, like carriers will send you things all the time. Like, oh, if you place X number of lives with us within the next quarter, we'll give you a bonus or whatever. We don't even look at those. We just delete those. They're not relevant to us. Like whether one carrier pays 5% commission and the other pays, uh, four and a half or six or whatever. I don't know because I don't look at that. that. And neither does anybody in my team. That's not how we operate. We're looking at price and value and how that fits the client. And so it's nice. We don't have to charge our clients for what we do. Cause sometimes there's fear. Like this sounds good. I really want it. What extra do I have to pay you in order to benefit from this, which is what I want. And they don't, they could literally go, straight to the carrier or go through us and get, you know, the actually if they went straight to the carrier, they'd pay more because with us, they're going to save money. They're going to have a better design. The carrier is going to just throw something at the wall. They're not going to have the benefit of the strategies and the techniques we use. But I did want to make sure I was clear about that. And to what your point was about awards. Yeah. I don't think it's too common that insurance agents per se would get awards, but because of the way we operate, we're really trusted advisors. And so we like the San Fernando Business Valley Journal, the San Fernando Valley Business Journal gave us, we were nominated and then we won this incredible award for being a trusted advisor in our space. And you get nominated by other trusted advisors. So they know that that must be legit because I mean, we certainly all we're doing our thing and we're grateful to have business and business referred to us, but we don't take or give referral fees. And so when someone considers us part of the advisory team, that means a lot. That's what we're looking to be is their consultants, not their salesperson. And I think you had another question. There was like a part two to it too. Like how do you win an award in insurance? And the other part were additional values that we try to pass on to our clients. Yeah. And how that, you know, how this infusion of the values and being a consultant and an advisor, how that's lent itself to you know, growing your business where I started, you know, incorrectly thinking that you were um, not receiving commissions, but it, it still kind of fits into this idea that even though you're not taking commissions from your client, you're taking them from the providers, but you're, you're giving so much value to your client and an old school way of thinking about that would be, well, I'm not going to get anything. I'm only giving, I'm giving, 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 I'm not going to get anything back, but instead you're actually getting a lot. I mean, the fact that you win awards and have grown so quickly as a company speaks to the fact that you're doing something that even though it doesn't give you a commission from the client, it's giving you a lot in other ways. Oh yeah. I think you need to, okay, this is where there's a difference between how consultants think, right. And how people with very small perspectives think, right. If you're like an animal, like a dog with a bone, right. And you're like, I'm on the money, <laughs> give it to me, right? And all you see is if I sell this one huge policy to this one high net worth client this year, I'll make whatever, $80,000. And that's enough to like live for a year almost, right? And that's what you're thinking. And that's your whole focus, right? That's a very taking kind of idea. You're like, I need. Um, what we do is we focus on doing what I see is like the math, right? What is the math of this giant equation where it's that person's need, right? And then their profile and what they can afford and all the factors that go into this really well-calculated equation. And then they, they shrink down or up depending on their, their needs, right? Like we have celebrity clients who are A-list actresses or major athletes, right? And there are a few more zeros on the scale of what they need in terms of planning or benefits, etc. But that same math equation is scalable down to my neighbor who might need like a $200,000 policy, meaning a $200,000 death benefit, which might cost them like 40, 50 bucks for a year, right? And that's 
fine because we don't care. We don't care how many zeros there are. We just care about doing that math really well for them, tailoring it to their needs. And that's because I believe when we create wealth for clients in that way, by helping with as little as they have or as much as they have, helping them maximize the value in all of that, we create that little bit of abundance for them. And they can take from that a foothold and use it for like future generations. Or if they're extremely wealthy, it's like, hey, you just didn't waste $200,000 on commission to a crummy broker. How about we give some of that to the charity of the choice? If you'd like, you do whatever you want with it. But here's an idea. Like, you know, there's more value suddenly in the equation. And so that concept of scarcity that I think so many people operate out of, we, we kind of try to stop that concept of scarcity. So we create kind of like this sense of abundance. Like, oh my gosh, it was actually easier to get protection than I expected. Oh, I can cover my, my employees. And the, the budget for the firm will stand. We won't go under. You know, I know they need health insurance. I want to provide it. Here's how I can do it. And then there's these win-wins that start to happen. And I think that's how we try to make a change for you know that trickle effect I think you were talking about. Yeah, what you're saying, Jennifer, really resonates with me, particularly in the context of the real estate investing world. And the challenge that we see a lot is a lot of real estate groups, they you know, care about raising capital for a deal, bringing you into this project today because you know that's how they make their money, and they forget about the medium and long term. And you know, real estate deals—they're based on forward-looking projections. And so, it's very easy for me, as a real estate sponsor, to promise you that you're going to get this great return today. When you know, I'm the guy who's manufacturing the numbers behind the scene, and oh, I know. Yeah. I can get you on the hook today, but what so many groups forget, and it's it's always so surprising to me because this idea that you just don't think about the medium and long term, and and even if you are truly a selfish actor, meaning all you care about is your own you know self interest or the economic return that you make, I would think more people would realize that having an investor invest twenty five percent of what they were going to, but then be a part of your network for the next 30 years is much more valuable than burning someone on the first transaction. And, you know, it seems like there's a lot of parallels to, to your world, particularly in the context of, of this conversation we're having right now. I couldn't agree more. I'm so thankful you said that because I think there is this thing where most people do tend to act out of self-interest and that's okay. That's very normal. There's a really interesting book actually that I absolutely love and it's called give and take. And it says that there are like three kinds of people in the world. There are givers, which they call the genius makers, by the way. And then there are matchers, which is like most people. And then there are takers. And takers tend to act like givers so they can secretly take from you. Like the guy from Enron, he had all these charities that he was a big part of, right? It's like how they mask some of like their true intentions. And it's actually kind of easy to, once you get kind of savvy, you can kind of start to identify the interests of a person that you're dealing with. Like when someone's really a giver, they're willing to like provide it and set it free and walk away. They're kind of like, okay, like here's my offering. If you want it, wonderful. If not, like you're lost, but okay, right? And and a matcher is kind of like more like the normal kind of average person because most people are thinking like, I do need things and I want things back right? But in general, if you're trying to only work out of altruism, you're not going to get everybody. I like to, to often make it clear to people by example that in my industry, for example, you can win doing it like this. You can win. You don't have to go take it in that other approach and you'll win better. You'll feel better. You'll, you'll have a long standing career. There was a guy in the office where I worked back in Beverly Hills he made over a million dollars of commission in one year doing viatical settlements that he lost his license two years later. And now he like owns restaurants. And at, even then at the restaurants, like he claims it's organic and it's really not like it's just BS, right? Like, of course, because that's his, that's his MO. But that seems to me so much harder than just like doing something passionately, doing something joyfully, doing it consistently. I don't think that 
almost anything can match consistent effort over time with high quality. Like very few things can match that. And we have examples over and over through life of that. In your industry, I think you have some of the same challenges that can happen in, in the insurance industry is that it can be very flashy. It can be very fast paced. There can be bad actors. There can be room for a lot of manipulation and, you know, impulse purchases or funny numbers and things like that. When I heard more about how you guys do what you do, I did feel really joyful because I'm a big believer in real estate as one of the buckets where people should be putting their wealth. So one of the things we talk about a lot with our clientele is like, you don't only use life insurance. It's a tool. It's one tool, but this is not the only part of your financial picture. You really ought to be in the stock market and also in real estate at some point, somehow, as soon as you can possibly get there, right? Because for example, there are a lot of investment advisors that will tell you put everything in my 401k because that way I get the fees off of your 401k and the market will always correct and like just give it time and as soon as the market's down they're like write it out write it out right and there's a lot of conventional wisdom or trust that that like that that's an okay or right place to be putting your money but just as we try not to put all our eggs in one basket anywhere it's also very dangerous to only be in the stock market, even if you're kind of doing what they call, you know, allocating risk proportionately and hedging it with like stocks and but all that stuff is still not enough to really not be all in one bucket and, and be vulnerable. Like we saw people in my generation saw devastating things happen to people with the Enron scandal, for example. And again, even more recently, where if your timing is poor and when you're retiring and that nest egg is down 30% in the stock market, that's not good for you. And you have no backup plan. That's not great. So we try to really encourage our clients to not think of it in these like either or ways and not work with people who are either or. They're like, be in the stock market with part of your money. Also make sure you're using life insurance the way it can be used for your benefit and for your protection. And also participate in real estate because it's amazing. My grandmother was a single mom and had three kids. And even when she passed away, she was able to leave a small amount to each child, even after being out on long-term care for 15 years. And that really resonated for me because what she had done was very shrewdly, whenever she could scrap together money as a school teacher, buy a little teeny property. And then her thing was always rent to families because they'll treat this with stability, like it was their own. And little by little, she could like buy a little better of a place, right? And so that illustrated for me the power of that, like little margin when it comes to finding your little foothold. How do you get it? And if you're not tremendously wealthy, those margins are the most important part, right? It can be hard enough for some people to enter, you know, any of these wealth buckets. And so the margins are critical. That's why what you guys are doing, the quality that you're delivering and the pretty low barrier to entry, I think, for getting into commercial real estate is truly wonderful because then even with whatever they're able to scrape together to participate, they're going to get a return and there's no risk of it being a flash in the pan strategy where they lose everything that they can't afford to lose. Yeah. Well, thank you for, you know, thanks for outlining it that way because it's, it's nice to hear that from another professional that sees the holistic picture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I said in the beginning, like we have these similar values where we're really trying to help people, you know, further diversify. And, and I would actually love to hear a little bit um, more specifically about insurance. So people who've been listening um, to us for a while and know us, I'd say, you know, probably are, are more familiar with, with real estate. I have a little bit of experience with life insurance, but after speaking with you before, I came away from that realizing like, I don't know anything about how to properly use insurance. And because everyone especially people in our network and our listeners are trying to build this financial foundation. How does insurance fit into that and specifically how you make that fit for a client? Sure. Great question. And I'm glad you asked. And it's so funny. And you're like, I'd love to hear because that's where we want people to get is a place of excitement and growth and education about 
how to use these things for their benefit. Insurance is actually a wonderful thing when properly used. And that's the key. So there are lots of instances where people need insurance protection. And I'm going to focus mostly on the life side for now, because there's such a large number of topics. And when we could talk about disability protection, we could talk about long-term care, which we might mention briefly tangentially, but I'll just talk about life insurance so people can start to kind of get a sense for it. Like if you have a family, that's pretty much one of the first times that you need life insurance. If you have student debt that you don't want to saddle somebody with and it's really significant, but no family, then maybe, you know, you have a small life insurance policy that you could use just to make sure you don't leave your debt to somebody else to be saddled with. Or if you're young and really have your act together, you're a young professional, you can use a kind of life insurance that I really like called Index Universal Life and start building it as a little part of your nest egg. It'll have a death benefit. And what's nice with life insurance is it's really pennies on the dollar if somebody does pass away, right? You're putting in a million dollar life insurance policy to protect your family. And if you're young and healthy, it can be costing like $300 or $400 a year. That's very little depending on how young you are. And that's where getting good education and not putting your head in the sand about things and just looking at your risks and vulnerabilities serves you because the younger you are, the cheaper your coverage, the younger and healthier you are. But as we get older, it costs more and more and more because mortality rates increase. And then the costs for entry into this vehicle can become even more expensive. And then there can be this cycle. So early planning is really good. But basically, you know, once you have anything that depends on you, life insurance is really important, just even basic term life insurance, which is the cheapest kind you can get. Some people never even discuss term because again, it's too cheap. They feel like it's not worth their while, but we use term insurance all the time, especially as one of the first building blocks of protection. Like if you have a family of two of parents, working parents and two children, for example, and you're living in a city, you need a couple million dollars of life insurance just to make sure that if God forbid something happened to one parent or both, these kids are going to have enough money to make it through to college, right? And or have someone pay a nanny 50 grand a year to replace a parent. And if they're a working parent to replace their income, that's just an example of one of the most basic entry points into needing life insurance. Then there are permanent life insurance strategies, which is an entire bucket. We have a thing on our website called Insurance 101 because the problem when people go online and they try to educate themselves is they're getting kind of the flood of all the opinions and spin out there. And it can really be difficult to decipher like what is good information and what is not. That's really difficult. But basically permanent coverage is usually three to five times more expensive than term coverage. And there are certain kinds of permanent coverage I would never recommend because they're just like, they're for shysters in my opinion. There's something called variable life insurance, which is a, it's like starting to get another resurgence again uh, as the market's doing kind of weird things. And I just want to right now caution people away from you know, anyone who's going to come to them and talk about variable life insurance, I think that's like a, I would, I would say there are better permanent life insurance products out there today that are far more safe and secure and deliver so much more. So just using my forum to help people as I can about variable. But there is something called index universal life insurance that's really great because what that does is like it takes some of the cost of insurance and it starts to credit interest into this bucket and the money grows in there tax-free. And then you can add on top of that what's called a long-term care rider. So instead of having to go get a whole separate long-term care policy for when you're old and you have to go into a home and it costs $10,000 a month and either going to use up everything you ever built or hope that your family ponies up, which they won't, you have something to, to do that. And you can just kind of build it all into one really well-designed permanent life insurance policy that's designed to be part of your retirement plan. It's got advantages. It can double up as a form of college savings. It's got guarantees. It's got all kinds of stability in it, which we see it as a way to kind of offset the risks in the stock market, which are, they have no guarantees. They have no floor protection. If the market's down 30%, it's going to be down on index products in the life insurance sector the floor is zero. So they'll only ever have positive interest credits. And it's getting kind of technical, but what we end up doing is for a lot of professionals who are making good money and are coming and saying like, okay, like what, 
what do I need to do and what should I do? We'll say, okay, well, are you in the stock market? Great. Do you have real estate? Great. And if the answer is also yes to those things, it's like, okay, then let's look at what life insurance you need. Do you have people you need to protect? Then we're going to put in term insurance, most likely for that. And, or if you don't, but you have more money and you want to use it as a way to kind of create another bucket for wealth, let's do something that's going to protect you in older age with long-term care and plan some retirement income. A lot of the business managers that we work with, they like that life insurance becomes a bill that the pay, that the, the talent will pay. Like if it's a basketball star making a lot of money right now, it's very tempting for them to spend it all. But because they do understand mortality, they can get a permanent life insurance policy that's going to have a death benefit to protect their heirs and everything. Yes, but also potentially be part of their retirement plan, which or actors, the same thing when there's not as much stability in their income. It's nice sometimes to take small amounts and put them into a well-designed policy so that those can continue to play out for them over time. There's, there's so, there's so much there. First of all, thank you for getting technical because oh, I, think I was it's like, really, oh no. <laughs> no, no, I was fascinated. I was fascinated. I, I think it's really important because those are the things like, and also like, thank you for like, you know, being courageous enough to say like, you know, watch out if somebody's trying to sell you variable rate right now, because people need to be told that they, you know, sometimes we hold back from maybe saying something that might upset another person and like, I don't know what's going on over there. And, but we actually need to be like standing up for what's right more. So thank you for mm-hmm. saying that. And also for getting so technical, I kept thinking about the ways that I might often feel I get worried easily about, you know, the future and my husband's student loans and like all these different things. And there's so much uncertainty right now. And I never take my life for granted. I never take anything for granted which the flip side is I worry a lot, (laughs) you know, but I thought like I should have life insurance. So maybe I'll stop (laughs) worrying so much because there's things that it legitimately, as you were speaking, I thought that's going to make me feel better. And that frees up energy. It frees up the joy. It frees up a whole lot of other things and it costs a little bit of money, but there's that that's the purpose of it right it's it's having that available so that you can plan for the future and it's also interesting you talked about long long term care because one of the asset classes that we invest in um a lot is senior living oh, right right all the senior living memory care and i was having a conversation yesterday with somebody and they and they were saying you know i'm not really sure I don't know anything about that asset class and what its potential is for the future. And I said, it's, it's got a 10 year minimum 10 year run in terms of the strength of it because of demographics. And, and although some people want to age in place, that is just not possible. And even if they want to age in place, someone's got to take care of them, like whether it's in their house or whether they have to go to like, you know, if they get like dementia, they have to go to memory care. So anyway, just a really long winded way of saying it was interesting you brought in the long term care because we know how much it costs for a resident to go into a facility. And Mm -hmm. I think it's not to be taken lightly um, because that's not cheap. Oh, my gosh. It's so interesting you say that because we have a lot of information about long-term care. Um, The average long-term care claim in 30 years is estimated to be $1.7 million per person. The average person lives at least two and a half years in long-term care once they go out on claim. And women live much longer than men on long-term claim. Actually, a lot of women can be outliers and live five, seven, or even like way longer than that. And there are different sections. People live, you know, like some percentage lives two and a half and then another percentage lives at least five. And the longer you live, the more expensive it is. Because again, today, an average LTC facility is like 10K for a nice place. If you live in a nice city, 5K for, it's kind of sad. And medic, you know, people have this fallacy that Medicare offers long-term care, but they do not just be advised. They do not. There is no like national bucket that's going to protect you. It's a, it's a major storm. And with the boomer generation, it's a big issue. So we're also very palpably aware of the legs of that particular sector. <laughs> if anything is going in, you know, it's very bullish <laughs> and probably not just for 10 years. But yeah, so one of the things I am really passionate about is trying to show people some of the coolest 
ways to use insurance to really protect against that worst case scenario. It's risk management. It's, it's, it's not, you know, speculative, really. Although there are a lot of great advantages in how you can accumulate and grow wealth through life insurance products if they're used correctly, and certainly passing on generational wealth, that's really important. And being able to pass on legacies of accumulated wealth rather than depleting them, which is another way you like make it better, right? Like you give people more of a head start, et cetera, as long as they still have good core values. Because that's another thing. You can't just have money and no values. You need to have good values so you can generate and spread good from the wealth. But anyway, there's this concept of what I love is like the Zig Ziglar quote, which is like, prepare for the worst, hope for the best and capitalize on whatever comes, right? And I think if you are only pie in the sky, like that's where you kind of can tend to get bitten or like find yourself like age 65 up a creek because you didn't do any planning. And that's not a way I, I hope to end up. And I think with a little bit of foresight and people who don't just run away from it, but they like run towards a problem and then like calmly and cogently create some contingency plans, then they are always way better off. And what we try to do with insurance, just going back to like what you were talking about being technical, we really try to build designs where like one way or another, they're going to get their money back basically from what they had to spend. The only, the only kind of insurance product that we have that's like, quote, down the drain is the term insurance. Cause if you outlive your 30 year term, that's good news. You know, you're still alive, you didn't die. But luckily that costs so little the way we do things that it was worth having your seatbelt on. It's like, I liken it to driving around with your seatbelt on. You wouldn't drive around without it. And hopefully if you didn't have an accident, your auto insurance was also a waste of money for all those years, but you can't guarantee. So I have a big picture question, Jennifer, that I feel like you're particularly well positioned to, to answer. So insurance companies, obviously they are you know, for-profit entities. And as I understand it, again, as kind of someone that's not too familiar with this space, like they are you know, relatively very profitable entities. And so I wonder from a, a structuring perspective, as someone who kind of likes to figure out better ways to do things. Do you think the insurance industry eventually moves into a, a different model? Or do you think that, you know, there is a better model than what we're using now? I'd just be interested to hear your your kind of high level commentary. Interesting. See, where I see inefficiency is among the brokers. I think insurance companies are profitable and I think they do a pretty good job delivering a pretty fair return. I think the brokers who are typically this army of people right, that are incentivized to go and spread word about the value of insurance. There are the people who are really the bad actors. The products themselves are really quite sound. The actuaries in life insurance are very good at what they do. Their job is to assess risk and take on a fair gamble, right? Like that's why they wanna know, do you smoke? What's your lifestyle? Do you have any DUIs? They wanna decide how much they need to charge so that hopefully somewhere along the way they come out ahead by aggregating your risk and all the hundreds of thousands of other risks that they're choosing to take on. And they're trying to be as generous as possible because they still need to make this something that's worth the consumer's while as well. So I feel like the, the life insurance carriers, of course, this is not every carrier out there. Like we only work with carriers that have an A rating or better. I think that goes without saying, but there are so many of those. And so among those, I don't really have a lot of beef with them. I have more beef with the brokers because a lot of them enter this as just like a sales, like, you know, like I just want to sell, I just want to get commission. They are not consulting. If you're a part of a financial team, like you guys, I expect you to do the work. I'm delegating to you the work of knowing all your stuff about real estate. I don't want to have to bone up on it with my full-time job. I want you to do that. And then I just want you to leverage that knowledge for my benefit. And if you do that, I'm very happy because I could delegate that job. So there's the value you just provided me. And then you're going to help my money grow, right? So I think that's quite a fair exchange where it's not great is where people are just slopping something at the wall. So it sticks. So someone gets it and they're not doing the work of getting them the best price for it, or even selling the best quality product on the market. And those are, that's where the broker or agent 
comes into play. And that's kind of why I was excited to do this podcast with you guys, because I think consumers, the more they get educated and aware of kind of the underbelly of how all this works, the better they can choose good advisors. Like just coming into like your guys' model, I think commercial real estate is a absolutely huge, awesome opportunity for people. And I would hope that people who understand that are able to discern from, you know, some of the actors out there in that market versus like you guys, right? I mean, you're working really hard to do a really good job at what you do. And hopefully with some education and awareness, people can start to sift between, okay, where are the bad actors? What are the things that can go wrong? Just like the stock market investments, okay? There's a thing called churning where you give your money to your investor, right? And they get a fee. They get like a little percentage of every dollar you give them. They also get additional money anytime they change a stock. And some people will just change your stock so they get a little bit more money. That's not good. You don't want that. On top of that, they can sometimes be charging 1% or 2% in addition to what the fund itself is charging, right? You're ending up sometimes at 3 or 4% of your money paid to this investor who's not even, maybe even actively navigating the stock market for you. But there are wonderful advisors who are doing a really good job who have lower fees. So I think consumer awareness is a big part, Dan, of how we improve things versus like changing the carriers, I would say per se, because life insurance rates have actually gone down over time, not up. They've gone down. I, I it might be an unexpected answer for me, but I, I think the products are great. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like I said, in the context of the question, not a space I had a ton of familiarity with. And I think you know, my perspective was always, you know, if you're an insurance company, like, you know, you're making a lot of money and, you know, part of the way that you structure your deals is, or, or policies, what have you is in a way where, you know, that's, that's the ultimate outcome. Right. And so it's interesting to hear you kind of talk about the market actually being much more efficient or lean, you know, than an outsider or someone who's never actually purchased life insurance, you know, has, so I think that's actually really in, informative. And then the other thing that you mentioned that I thought was interesting is just this, the challenge you have in an intermediary role, you know, mm. you, you play that role, you know, we play that role. As an intermediary, you're always being compensated based on some type of transaction occurring, whether it's a real estate investment or a, an insurance policy being purchased. But it's really about, at least in, in our opinion or my opinion, aligning incentives as best as you can, you know, understanding there's always going to be you know, some conflict of interest. And I think you guys are able to remove it in a lot of ways by just saying, hey, we're not looking at commissions, we're agnostic, you know, what have you. And for, for us, it's always about trying to push our compensation to the performance side as mm -hmm. much as possible. There's like a, let's keep the lights on fee. And I think people understand that. And, and the, the kind of what we always say is, you know, we're okay when our sponsor partners make a lot of money when they make our investors a lot of money. We're not okay when they make a lot of money and they don't, right? And that's yeah. really the crux of trying to align our interests and our investor interests and the sponsor partners that we work with. So a, a long uh, tangent, I just went on there, but, you know, the, the intermediary role is unique. I think a lot of times we find ourselves in a position where we need to justify our, our fees, even in you know light of the fact that they kind of make perfect sense in the context of what you're giving versus what you're getting in return. And so, yeah, nevertheless, just you know my thoughts on the matter. That's really interesting. And I agree with you that models where everyone's goals are aligned towards the same outcome are great, right? You want everyone to want the same result which is, okay, everyone's making money and this commercial real estate venture has done well. That's a good thing. It's right. It's a scary model going back to a little pet peeve of mine while well, I have my soapbox where an investment advisor who has got your funds in the market is getting paid no matter what the market does. If it goes up or it goes down, they are getting their 1%, often 2%. No matter what, they could literally be asleep and they could be making their money. And often when the market's down, they are just telling you to stay in it 
ride it out, right? And I understand that, and I understand the power of investment over time very, very well. And I'm not here to completely only bash on the stock market or investment advisors. But I think one of the concerns that I have is just like overall financial savvy of the general like average person and how much faith they put and how they don't even question the fees that these like middlemen who handle their 401k or their IRA get for doing virtually literally nothing actually like most of the time almost literally nothing if you really know how these things work versus people like you who are curating and sifting and researching and keeping your finger on the pulse and kicking the tires and doing diligence before you tee up on a plate special opportunities for people for their benefit that's actually very hard work and worth every penny and then on top of that when you align that with and on top of that i really only do anything besides break even if you also come out ahead i think that's more than a fair equation i do and in ours, it's a little tricky because we're still taking people's wealth and doing something with it. But where I'm looking at is how do I set them up to be really, really safe? Like, how are they, no matter what happens in their life, they're going to be better than if they did nothing and came to me and, and a lot better. Another thing I wanted to touch on, because you helped me think about it, Dan, is the one area where life insurance companies really come out ahead is people who buy insurance but drop it if you buy a policy and you pay for even 400 bucks a year for it and drop it three years later and you never die right they made 1200 off you and never paid out that million dollars that they would have paid if something had happened to you you do need to work with a really good advisor in your insurance so that you're getting the very best rate you can while you're healthier and younger than you'll ever be and then keep it because if you're doing it in the hands of a good advisor, it's going to be the best deal you could ever have gotten. You won't want to drop it. I explain to my clients sometimes, it's like a lot of the bad actors will focus on talking you into something, right? Hey, get, you know, here's this scheme. I, I know you don't really have the money, but do it anyway. It's 2,500 bucks. And three years later, like, the dust has settled and you're like, what did I do that for? I don't, I don't even know. Or I've had even worse stories where, you know, friends have talked somebody into taking a big chunk of their money and putting it into this Ponzi scheme, kind of where the bank will pay the interest. It, like there's lots of stuff that can happen. And when they finally realize like, wow, this didn't do everything I, I was told it would do, they dropped the policy. And that's where you really see the sort of the, the bad stories. Again, those are due to the bad actors who are quote talking somebody into something as opposed to doing it like the way we are doing things, which is where here's the very best value you can get. Here's the absolute least it can possibly cost. Here's why you're getting it. Here's complete clarity on what you're doing with it, what it protects you from, what are the potential other good things that are coming from it. And by the way, it's going to cost less than anyone else can ever get you to cost, you know, for this. and you want to keep it in your financial puzzle forever as you layer on all the other parts of your um, wealth and accumulation and retirement strategy. That's such great advice, Jennifer. Thank you so much. That's uh, a lot. I think you're going to get a lot of people calling you. <laughs> I hope that they do. And it's just great advice. And it kind of speaks to, you know, the, the last question that I want that I want to ask you and kind of talk about, because you, you mentioned it a couple times. And, you know, it's this idea of the, the healthy financial foundation that we're all trying to build. It allows us to live a good life today. It allows us to plan for the future in the midst of so much uncertainty right now. You, you know, you said this is a risk management strategy. It helps you to feel safe. So there's like a big emotional component. And as everyone thinks about and works towards this idea of wealth, my question to you is what does wealth mean to you? I love this question so much because it's something that I've thought a lot about. I have thought about why am I even in this profession? It's such a funny thing to find yourself kind of in this and be dedicated to it as passionately as I kind of, I am, right? And it goes back to that thing I said about loving to make things better than they were before. I, I, my mom was a single mom, hairdresser, immigrant, and I, 
saw the wonderful things she did to always make me feel like we were wealthy. Like I thought I was middle class until I went to Princeton. And then people would like go to the city and try on clothes at Betsy Johnson and then actually buy them. And I was like, I didn't know that was a thing that people did. I just try them on and walk away and be like, would have been cool if I had that, but of course I'm not going to. Um, or eating out at restaurants instead of just at the cafeteria, which was already paid for, right? And that was where I started to realize like, oh, I guess I'm, maybe I'm not, you know, I guess quote rich, but I felt good because my mom would do things like, she'd come home from work with a pair of earrings or a sweater for me that I didn't even ask for. I'd be like, I don't need it. I'm okay. Why'd you do this? It's just like an abundance. And I realized later now it's because they were on sale at express and they were really cheap and she wanted to do something nice for me. And that was within her budget. But the abundance was that I wasn't needing it. It was beyond what I needed. And I think wealth is having more than you need. Like, oh, you no, know, like what you need and plus a little bit more. And I think the beauty of that is it can be scaled down or up because the one weaver you have is kind of like, well, what do you really, at the end of the day, what's important to you? So I have families that have huge means and they spend a lot. And then because they do that, they need a lot. They have huge estates and they're going to have big tax implications and it all escalates. And that's okay. That's actually fine. They're helping the economy. And then there are people who can uh, be more full with a little bit less. Like I think this time of quarantine has showed us like, do you need as much or what, what is essential and what's not, right? And you can scale things down. But the feeling of having, for example, as much love as you want, plus a little extra, maybe a few more kisses or hugs every day than you really just would need, or a little bit more money to be able to spend on things that you want, you know, I think that's wealth. And the, the thing about our world and economy is not everybody is in that luxurious position. And so when I'm able to help people stay a little bit away from desperate need and more into like, we're good. I think that's how I try to help move the needle. And I want that for every human being on earth. I really do. Because I think the world would just become a much better place if people weren't, you know, when people are like in a corner, they get more scarce, they get more desperate. And then all kinds of things happen. So the more we can create abundance on earth, and there's so much to go around. There's so much to go around. Yeah, I agree. Sorry, I totally that's agree. a very preachy kind of thing. You got me. <laughs> um, you got me really on a big topic. But it's really important, I think, just to know that it's attainable for people to have what what is really wealth. It's not a number. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think it was preachy at all. I think it was beautiful and heartfelt. And the more I feel like the more people in positions of having any amount of wealth, right, because we all do to various degrees, the more that we can really appreciate what we have and, and turn that around in some way to help those who don't. And we're seeing so much of that inequality nowadays. It's really heartbreaking, but it's also galvanizing towards you know, having that sense of gratitude and personal abundance. And then from that place, moving from that place, helping from that place, doing something. And so many of our listeners and our members and our network are very wealthy in their own ways and simultaneously have concerns about their wealth. So we, we just need to kind of bring it home to that centered place and, and real, like, what does that mean to each of us? And we all have different ways of describing it. And that's why we like to ask the question. So, you know, it was a beautiful, beautiful insights and, you know, everything that you talked about today was very interesting. There's so much to learn here, so much value. And, you know, like we said, going into this, you know, hoping to provide a lot of value and education for the listeners. And I would say we've definitely done that. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to work with you guys and just help, help share information. And I'm very happy to have gotten to work with you guys today. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jennifer. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast 
at alphaeye.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.